Father, this morning, it's true that your name is what's consistent, and your love for us is what's constant. Forgive us, Father, for forgetting this. In the midst of a world, Lord, that is struggling to find hope and peace and assurance and future, God, thank you for the privileges, Bobby said, that we get to gather and be reminded. God, teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this morning, we uh, continue in our series, The Heart of a Disciple, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand, and uh, some will magically find their way to your seat, hopefully. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Matthew chapter 8 is what we're going to be digging into this morning. Just raise your hand, some of the ushers or someone that wants to just volunteer and hop up and pass out Bibles. You don't have to be qualified to do it, by the way. It's just the Bibles are there. You can hand them out. There you go. So keep your hand up high if you would. Uh, Don't you find it interesting? We have this great day of Thanksgiving, and our country is celebrated, and it's a worldwide, uh, really, holiday. A lot of people celebrate Thanksgiving on different days, but I find it interesting is that the very next day, Black Friday, and I was trying to figure out where did the Black Friday show up, but it couldn't be more opposite of what the day of Thanksgiving, right? Thank you, God, for what we have and what you've given us. But tomorrow, I'm going to go purchase all the things that I don't have, right? 220 million people will be shopped this weekend. Can you, meet, uh, can you imagine? And I read that uh, Best Buy had to shut down in Green Bay for an hour because so many people were fighting to get in to find their electronics. So um, hopefully I'm not shaming anybody in this room if you were there. No, more power to you. Uh, I say that because I think it's very difficult today to be a disciple, Jesus will use this term more often than uh, any other term in Scripture. It's not be a Christian, it's be a disciple, be a follower. And the world that we live in doesn't help us culturally. It talks about all the things that we think we need and we're supposed to be about and doing, and being a disciple is very difficult in the culture that we live in today, but it's not very different than what it was like in ancient Israel. In basic times of the scriptures, we find that the disciples also struggled and tried to figure out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We've been in this series for several weeks about our church re-kind of aligning, revising kind of our programs and the things that we've done to make disciples because nowhere in scripture did it call us to build buildings. Nowhere in scripture did it say create programs. Nowhere did it say create services in an hour and 15 minutes long and don't bump into the NFL football schedule. And it just didn't leave us these instructions. What it did say was make disciples, make disciples. So we've been on this couple year journey as a church and trying to figure out what are the things that we need to let go of that really aren't helping us make disciples and what are the things that we need to grab onto As we continued that series, we just realized we've been talking about making disciples. We want to talk about, as Bobby said, what's the anatomy or the makeup of a disciple? Now, making a disciple isn't just saying doing certain things. We recognize based on the title itself is there's a heart change. And Bobby talked last week about what it means to be a disciple as a heart of a giver. And if you haven't heard that, I would just encourage you to do that. But this morning, we're going to talk a little bit more about what does it mean to have the heart of a disciple, and we're going to look at another aspect of what it means to be a disciple in your heart. 
Disciples back then, uh, there were interesting kind of notes about disciples. There's two Greek words that really the word disciple kind of finds its roots and origin in. And the two Greek words, I'm not very Greek, so however you want to pronounce these, but basically it means to, be, to, be, to, to learn or, and to be a student. And these two words kind of combine what make up this idea of being a disciple, and it comes out with the definition of one who follows the teaching of someone else. In other words, you could be a disciple, and it doesn't have to be a disciple of Jesus. This term was used not exclusively with Christianity, but was also just being disciples of, you could be a disciple of learning how to fight battles and a disciple of a Roman soldier, and, or a, a disciple of your your father who is teaching you the, the family trade. And so this term disciple was used all throughout Scripture, uh, but it comes to find uh, a home with the idea of being a Christian or a Christ follower or a disciple of Jesus. Now, a couple different uh, other facts about being a disciple. It never contains uh, or any implications of salvation. Now, let me just talk about this for a minute. Jesus picks 12 disciples, right? He picks 12 disciples, and there's one disciple we know that isn't really a disciple, but he's called a disciple, right? It's Judas. None of the other disciples understand that he's not a disciple until what? He betrays Jesus. Otherwise, they're in all the way up to the Last Supper. They don't know. So it tells us that being disciples, really, we can't tell who is a disciple or not. Scripture will tell us we'll know by the fruit, but really, we can fool a lot of people. I can fool people. You can fool people. Disciples of Christ aren't measured necessarily by the outer exterior of their lives. Jesus will talk about the Pharisees this way. There has to be an inward transformation. There has to be a heart change. And so we know that there are a lot of disciples of Jesus, but they can maybe not be disciples. They could be following Jesus. Jesus had lots of people following him. We're going to find that out in Matthew chapter 8. Also, this appears about 294 times in the New Testament, that this term is very popular. Now, I want you to read kind of this description because it gives us a better picture of discipleship. Discipleship meant much more than just transferring of information. I want to just, I want to encourage us, and, and you've heard me maybe throw a few darts in messages about this. We were never designed to treat this book as a definition book. This book is not a science book or a, or a dictionary. It is the living logos of God. It's the breath of God. That means it is always a, a spiritual book, not necessarily a science textbook. Yet we treat it that way. We try to read the words and get the exact definitions and figure it out when... The Spirit has breathed this life into this book. That means you can read a passage over and over and what? Find new application, find new depth and new meaning. And I want you to know as I come to this book, I come to this book every time I teach, you can ask my wife and feel very unworthy, very ignorant. I have to continually find other sources of being taught and understanding more and more about what this book means because I find myself at 48, have been a Christian for a lot of years, having gone to school, going, wow, this is more than just memorizing verses. Being a disciple isn't just regurgitating information. Again, it referred to imitating the teacher's life, his values, and reproducing his teachings. 
For the Jewish boy over 13, it meant going to study with a recognized Torah scholar, imitating his life and faith and concentrating on mastering the Mosaic law as well as the traditional interpretation of it. In other words, we would read this book as disciples, not to just know it, but to have it in our hearts and we begin to look like Jesus. Friends, we could talk like disciples and we can know lots of answers like disciples, but until the word of God seeps into our hands and feet and we become people that love like Jesus loved, that we live like Jesus lived. Man, last night before Trisha and I went to bed, I just, after study and just came and said, man, she says, what's going on? I, I, oh, I feel so un, undisciple-like. She goes, what do you mean? I just, I go, man, I think I fail miserably as a disciple. I'm just convicted as I go again to this book and as I, as the Holy Spirit works in my own heart and as I even am taught by many of you, the body of Christ, I just recognize, wow. And she reminded me that's the power of Christ and the cross and so I don't have to earn it. I don't. But don't you feel at times, wow, Lord, this heart and this mind, the actions that I, oh, it's hard work. No different than it was back then as the, the disciples then were facing not only a spiritual persecution but a physical one also. And this morning I want to kind of help us dive into Matthew chapter 8 and look at another aspect of a heart of a disciple and it's, it's a learning heart. You see, disciples have learning hearts, hearts that are teachable teachable. How does a heart become teachable? I want to talk about some things this morning that have to be surrendered. But we fight against culture. We fight against a culture that has misunderstood what it means to be a disciple. Dallas Willard says it this way, the leading assumption in the American church is that you can be a Christian but not a disciple. That's not true. You can't be a Christian and not a disciple. It says, that has placed a tremendous burden on the mass of Christians, that means the gatherings, who are not disciples. We tell them to come to church, participate in programs, and give money. There's a lot of guilt and shame. But we see a church, but we see a church that knows nothing of commitment. We've selected or settled for the marginal, and so we carry this awful burden of trying to motivate people to do what they don't want to do. We can't think about church the way we have been. In other words, do you see what happens if people aren't transformed in the heart, if they're not really disciples, then we gather here and disciples do these things, people start doing them. Oh, that's weighty. That, that's heavy and that's guilt and that's shame when really Jesus changes the heart of people. And when his spirit is in the life of a person, there is a longing, there is a surrender to be this disciple. Willard will continue on and he'll say, we need a clear we need it clear in our heads about what discipleship is. And here's his definition. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn to do what Jesus said to do. Most important thing. Not just to know about Jesus, but to live their life like he called us to live. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples, listen to this, I love this sentence. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising the affairs of their life to carry through uh, on their decision to follow Jesus. 
And so last night, as I lay my head to rest, it's a revising of the priorities of my life. It's revising. This morning, might your hearts be revising some of the priorities and placement of where you've allowed life maybe to take over, maybe to take that place. And so this morning, Matthew chapter 8 is going to kind of throw us right into this beautiful picture of some surrendering of a heart and what a learner's heart does. It surrenders certain things. And so let's dive right in. And as Trish and I, again, last year had to go, or had this year a chance to go to Israel, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus is going to be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Mount. I love that about Israel. This is like where Jesus was. They say that the, the audio, uh, the way this, this, the geography was, someone could stand at the base of this hill and talk to 15,000 without a sound system. And so Jesus spoke here, the Sermon on the Mount. And so it says, uh, as we find kind of the Sea of Galilee there, it says, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So two things here. First of all, we find that there's a leper. Lepers were unclean in Jewish culture and Hebrew history. You never went near a leper. Leper colonies where people were um, uh, kind of excommunicated from communities and pushed, pushed into to villages to, to just live together as lepers. Now, leprosy is not as relevant today because a very small part of the world population actually is uh, infected or, or affected by this. And we can read leprosy and think, oh, no big deal. Jesus just loved people. No, it, it was a pretty nasty disease. In fact, so much that you, just, you stayed away from it. It was unclean to touch a leper. Second thing is this leper says, Lord. He doesn't say teacher. He says, Lord. It's not like you have some good things to say. He says, Lord, which I want you to just kind of take note of because it's going to pop up a few times here. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You're the one that can do this. Here's a picture of leprosy um, as it stands today in third world, modern day in a third world. So you can imagine now, it's not Jesus just walking to someone who looks kind of normal. It is, what's Jesus doing? He's, he's crossing this cultural boundary. I could imagine some kind of judgmental people saying, Jesus, don't do this. Don't cross that boundary. No, no, stay away from him. So Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man and says, I am willing. He says, be clean. Same word used in this idea of clean that comes out of the word kathros uh, in, the, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. It means to, to be made clean. The Hebrew writer talks about the blood of Christ cleansing us. Immediately he was cleansed of all his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer a gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We see a little picture here of someone who not only felt unclean but was I think many this morning feel that way when we say be a disciple oh if you only knew how leprous my heart is my mind if you only knew the darkness Jesus continues on and he'll he'll then talk to a centurion as he goes into Capernaum now he's walking down the hill 
And it's a very short walk to Capernaum, his kind of his home village. And a centurion would be a Roman soldier over about 100 soldiers who would really have no reason to talk to a Jewish person, uh, let alone Jesus, who begins to be kind of a, an, one of those outer lying, not even following the kind of the Jewish tradition of scribes and Pharisees. But he says, Lord, again, this word Lord. He said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and suffering terribly. So th- the picture of this scene is in Jesus' hometown, Capernaum. The lower section there is actual first century where Jesus would have walked. This was the village. Uh, the temple there was rebuilt later on. So you can see, this is, again, j- this is where Jesus was. Now Capernaum, Jesus will later curse, remember? Jesus will curse Capernaum. He'll say, because I did great works here. I did miracles and you didn't believe. Sodom and Gomorrah would have believed if I would have done those works. It's a, it's a very harsh reproof to this city. So Jesus is going to say to this centurion, shall I come to heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, again that word, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. There's a Roman centurion. The same centurions, not necessarily this one, that will crucify Jesus, that will mock him, that will gamble for his robe. I don't, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. Do you think God's doing something to the heart of this centurion? He says, but just say the word, my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one to come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Some may feel leprous or ugly, like they're just unclean. Others will feel like they have this place of authority. This level of, of status. We find that these surrender in an interesting way. It says, when Jesus heard this about this centurion, he was amazed. Trisha just kind of talked about that before I came up to with me, but we were just talking about Jesus was amazed. It's kind of interesting. Wouldn't he already know that? So this is one of those mysterious things we don't know, but he says, by the way, I was surprised. I was amazed by his faith. I not found anyone in Israel with this great faith. Uh, pretty powerful. Uh, the next text here leads us kind of this section. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And so he touches her hand. Fever leaves her and she gets up and begins to wait on them. Uh, the word, other words would be serve. It's the same word used in service for church leadership. Um, and so she has this, it's, uh, it's, it's a term used for how we're to operate as ministers. And so she serves. It's a very interesting picture here that Jesus is beginning to paint. In the last, it says Jesus heals many. When evening came, he, there was people that came that were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. This was to fulfill what he spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is a prophetic reading from Isaiah. I think this is important this morning because the first part of surrendering heart that's a learning heart is they surrender their pride. Surrendering their pride. A couple different ways. You may feel like you're very ugly. I've heard people say, if you only knew what I'm like. If you only knew kind of that diseased heart and soul that I have, Jesus wouldn't want to touch me. 
And this morning we get this beautiful sense that you can be a learner and a learning heart of a disciple if you just surrender that pride and make him Lord. They call him Lord. Another way is that pride. You see this one that's in authority, this, this centurion who has this, and status can do that to us, and having the ability to command people left and right. And friends, it's easy to have pride set in all of us, myself included. And we can play off like we know things about Scripture, but we really don't. We know what we know. We don't know what we don't know, but we act and live like we know everything. Sometimes it takes us surrendering our pride and saying, just make him Lord. To have that heart of a learner that's a teachable spirit, we've got to surrender that back to him. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a learner, a student. But it continues on, and he's going to talk about now what it means to have that cost. What's this cost? Because there's more to surrender for a disciple of Jesus. So when he saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. Now he's at the base of the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, and it's about 7 miles wide. So up there at the top, if you see that little writing, you probably can't read it, it's Capernaum. And so Jesus is, is suggesting that we're going to take a boat journey, not a motorboat, not a powerboat, but a sailing journey, and it's to be about seven miles all the way about to this region. We can't really tell exactly where he is. If you kind of read about where this, um, he's going to cast out demons later on on the other side of the lake, we don't exactly know where that is in modern day. Roughly about a seven-mile journey in a sailboat. That's a long way, all right? Now, what's interesting to note about this Sea of Galilee, it's divided into two sections. And so often in the Gospels you're going to read, Jesus is going to go back and forth. It's because there's a Jewish side that are separated by the Jordan River, and there's a Gentile side, meaning pagan, meaning those lost people. It's as if like Las Vegas would be on the Gentile side, right? <laughs> and it's the worst place to go, have nothing to do with there, and all the Christian side is on the Jewish side. Jesus is constantly making trips back and forth, which should just help us understand we can't know the hearts of people, and friends, we should not be judging the hearts of other people. We should be learning what it means to love lost people. The only warning God gives us is to call those who say that they're disciples of Christ and to challenge one another to continue in that. And if we see ourselves not living like disciples, that are saying we're disciples, then call us on it. That's it. So this picture here, Jesus is going to say, all right, let's all get in our boats. Listen to these two fellows that talk up. It says, then a teacher of the law, that means a scribe, an expert in theology of the time, in the Torah, in the Mosaic law, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a big thing. This teacher is saying, I am in some ways separated myself from the pharisaical way, and even though from what I know, I think you're a good teacher. Notice what he doesn't call him. What doesn't he call him? He doesn't say Lord. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is is responding, he must know something of the heart of this person, and he recognizes this scholar may just want some new information, some new insight, some new expert teachings. So maybe he could add to his 
portfolio. Not only do we surrender our pride, we're to surrender our possessions or our, our need to kind of self create our own possessions, our things. And he says, listen, where I'm going, I don't even have a place to sleep. You're going to have to let go of all of your accomplishments, all your possessions, all those things, and make me provider. Now, this is hard, isn't it? I mean, Trisha and I talk all the time about finances and about provision and about college, not our own college, but our girls' college, and then you know, how long it's going to be before they can get married, like in their 30s, because we can recover from college. <laughs> so there's this fear, and then we hear fiscal cliff and all this, and don't you sense, I have to take charge of this provision, because I don't think Jesus is awake. I don't know if he recognizes this. Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to let go of this need to to provide for yourself. It doesn't mean we sit on couches and wait for Jesus to show up to the front door. Not literally. It says be responsible, but God will provide what we need. He continues on. This second fellow says, another disciple says to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I used to read this and think, that's pretty harsh. Is Jesus literally saying we should go and never go to funerals? I've heard people explain that to me. No, we're not supposed to go to funerals. No. The cultural context is very deep and insightful for what we're to understand. Back then, if I was the eldest son, my responsibility would be that if my father were to die, I were to bury him and then have a seven-day mourning for him. At the end of seven days, I would be kind of glued to the area, be waiting one year to bring him back out of the ground. Hopefully the flesh should be gone from his bones because saving the bones was a very connected part of resurrection. And we would put those bones in an ossuary, into kind of a, a limestone carved out box where that he would be waiting for resurrection. This is Jewish custom. We obviously sense something's happened here. Obviously his dad's not dead. Why? Because he's, he's there with this rabbi teacher, Jesus, because otherwise he'd be at the seven-day morning, right? Something he, that we insightfully understand and through commentary is that his dad's not even dead yet. In fact, it was a term later on used like, I have to go bring the bacon home, bread the, the bread and the bacon. You know, I got I to gotta hit it on Monday. It's kind of the, those phrases that we come up with the saying that I've got to be responsible about these priorities in my life. It would have been, I got to bury my father one day. I, I got to do that. I might follow you, Jesus, but I can't right now. The previous guy said, well, I might, but I won't. This guy says, well, I can't right now, but I might later. We have to also surrender our priorities and make him priority. If we want a learner's heart, we not only have to surrender our pride, but our possessions, also our priorities. So often I hear people say that, well, I've got these things to do. I don't think God really understands the responsibilities that I have in this world today. He does. And he says, make me Lord. Make every moment of your day priority is me. 
Make me Lord. Make me Lord. What's interesting about these two fellows is they won't get on the boat. The journey's too long. They've had to ask the question, do I really trust him for possession? Do I really trust him for the priorities of my life? It's not saying walk away from your families, but it's saying Jesus is more important than your family. When we read that, we don't read that literal to say leave your families. We read that to say he is the most important thing in my life. And based on that, I will lead my family with Jesus as Lord. I will live my work life with Jesus as Lord. With the responsibilities that I have today with Jesus as Lord. The last surrender for us to be learners, this heart of a disciple that's a learner, is where Jesus now is going to get into the boat. He's going to cross over to this other side of, of the Sea of Galilee and we find that the, the storms in Galilee can be up to 10-foot waves. It's about 600 um, feet below sea level and so the winds can come through pretty rough and so as then he gets into the boat and his disciples follow him. So there's kind of a weeding out of these disciples and it had to be many boats obviously because there are a lot of people following him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, and the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. A couple things we can assume here. Long enough for Jesus to get to sleep. Now, some of you can get to sleep pretty quickly. Had to be long enough for Jesus to go to sleep. So, long journey. Uh, Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, Jesus is going to reply here and says, you of little faith. But as I read this, I thought, well, wait a second. Jesus, not fair. Time out. Foul. These guys had some level of faith, right? Because they woke you up. They're like, hey, he's the one in charge here. Let's go wake up the man. I don't think they knew what that meant, but they woke him up. I felt like, wow, this was speaking to me personally. Because you know what I recognized? How many times have I thought, I better wake God up through prayer because I don't think he really knows what's going on. I better make my list to God. There's something about this surrender and trust that you just know even when God doesn't seem close. It says, you of little faith, why are you so what? Afraid, fearful, anxious. I know none of us feel that today. About life, about future, it says, then he gets up and rebukes the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This last surrender is that we surrender really our plans, our future. At first, last night I changed this word because it said surrender fear, but I recognized really, um, to make it another P too, so it was easier to remember, um, but really, it's, it's less surrendering fear. It's quit worrying about your future. Fear has a lot of connection for us of being out of control, not knowing what's coming next. And it says, make me your protector. Don't worry. Jesus will say in the Gospels, cast all your fears and anxieties on me. He knows we're going to have them. Friends, I still have them. I'm, I get fearful at times, but I'm told, don't worry. Don't worry. We're to surrender our pride. We're to surrender our possessions. 
We're to surrender our priorities. We're to surrender our plans. All to make him Lord because a disciple has a learning heart. That is a heart that is surrendered to him. And I think we forget what we're surrendering to. We're surrendering to him as Lord. But what does that look like today? It looks like three things. When you become a Christ follower, you surrendered your life to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came into your life, and he is the great teacher. It says, I'm going to leave you one that's greater than me, that you will be able to do greater things than I did. Jesus said this. You will have the potential to do mighty things on this earth with the work of the Spirit in your life. We're to surrender our lives continually to the Spirit's work. Have you let go of pride and possession and priorities and plans to the Spirit? He also says, I'm going to leave you something that the ancients didn't have the benefit of, of a word. Not a dictionary, not a textbook, but a logos, as the scripture says, the pneuma, the breath of God, the spirit of God. Not so that we can know answers, but we can know how to imitate the life of Christ. That when that word seeps into my heart, it changes how I love people and forgive and live a different life. It doesn't just change my mind, it changes my heart and my hands and feet. But the last, not only the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures, is the Holy Church. Have you heard that before? You know what that is? It's not the building. And I think we forget that we're to submit ourselves, because it says, to the body of Christ. That's the gathering of disciples. The gathering of disciples that I might learn from you and you from me as we struggle to revise our understanding of what it means to be Christ followers and disciples today. What does it mean to surrender? Like have a holy surrender to God. What does that look like? I've been wanting to show this video for quite some time because I feel like it, it's just something I, I saw and brought tears to my eyes because I recognized how I can talk about being a disciple and talk about surrendering, but there's something about seeing people surrender physically and emotionally to not only the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Scriptures, but to one another and the beauty of the body of Christ. And there is this, this tribe in Indonesia that in the, 1960, in the 60s, in 1963, there was a couple of missionaries that went there and were were actually um, martyred by a tribe neighboring this tribe. But they were there to bring the truth of Christ. They were there to bring the hope of Christ to the Scriptures that they may receive the Holy Spirit and become this fellowship of disciples. Well, this tribe ends up uh, you know, uh, seeing these martyrs, but more missionaries come. They end up becoming rich in disciple-making without very limited resources in the Scripture. What you're going to see in 2010 is their first Bibles translated and brought to them on a plane by a translation group. I want you to capture what it looks like to have a holy surrender to the Spirit, to the Scriptures, and to the community of Christ. I want that to kind of set our hearts in motion to be able to go to the table and for us to understand what it looks like for us to be learners.